is uh, an immediate thing, being mindful now. You can't, if you have the idea that you're, after this retreat, maybe you'll become mindful in the future, and you've missed the whole point of it. <laughs> That's how the ignorance of the mind can operate. It's always this idea of becoming enlightened rather than being enlightened. When practicing meditation to become enlightened, and that's some kind of concept you have, enlightenment in your mind about attaining some state that you think would be very desirable to have, rather than being enlightened. Being enlightened is what? Being aware, awake, nothing more than that. But it's so simple that you, you would tend to never have confidence in being enlightened, You'd have confidence maybe in a technique that you think is going to take you to enlightenment. Or you, you have a lot of ideas and views and opinions about becoming that way. Yesterday is the is what we remember, isn't it? It's the past. So everything that happened yesterday is a memory that arises now. It's the idea of a meditation retreat and what happened, what happened to the little insects biting you under the beech tree. That's a memory now, isn't it? And then. Tomorrow is the unknown. Notice what it, what it's like to not know something. To just be with not knowing something. Do you realize how much of one's life can be just a reaction to that not knowing something? <laughs> the believing in things helps us to 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 kind of mother that insecurity of not knowing isn't it believing in God there's somebody up there that loves me and will take care of me is a comfortable belief believing that everything's going to be all right and I'm not going to suffer anymore believing in whatever is is uh, something we use to cover over the anxiety of not knowing And yet, so much of life is, is, can never be known, is it? There's, there's, there's the future is the unknown. What will happen in the future? The insecurity of, of situations that we don't understand. Just the anxiety, general anxiety of life is ignored. Not, not reflected on, not understood by easy, settling easily for kind of uh, beliefs in things and opinions and views things to grasp hold of it takes quite a courageous person to abide in the state of not knowing something to be willing to, to be kind of in the void, in the emptiness of things rather than fixing on to beautiful thoughts and images and 
teachings and whatnot. But as maturing beings, say, children need the security of a family, parents that protect them, don't they? When you're a child, you need to have a mother and father that say, we love you and we'll take care of you and we'll provide for you because children have to, they're dependent. And it's a part of growing up, being totally dependent upon parents or people who will provide for you. Sometimes we never, we never really grow up out of that state. We're always looking for something, somebody to take care of us, whether it's God or somebody else. I'm looking for somebody who will love me and take care of me. Never, dis never, uh, never uh, disappoint me. Religion sometimes tries to keep us on that level, doesn't it? Of just believing and and uh, saying you just behave, behave yourself, and do what mummy and daddy say, then everything's going to be all right. You'll be rewarded for your obedience. So the idea, say, like in Christianity, of a father god, a patriarchal god that, that looks down from above and knows everything we do and loves us, is very much a, a, a child's view, isn't it? It's really the way children look at the world. When I was a little boy, uh, my father would look to one's father, he kind of protected one, protected the family. And then when I was told about God, he just pres presumed, presumed that God was a more powerful father than mine. My father only had power in the home. Outside of the home, he seemed, didn't seem to have much power. Uh, God had power just a kind of extension of a father. Then we get these paternal, patriarchal concepts that we believe in. Because it's a kind of natural thing to believe in, isn't it? From a child's uh, viewpoint. Of needing somebody who overlooks and protects you, loves you and takes care of you, guarantees security. just note pointing this out is to be considered the the mature mature human being is one who no longer demands protection or nurturing from anyone else because they can do that for others we no longer need to go around asking for protection or somebody to take care of us because we can we can give rather than have 
seek security from others. One can love without asking to be loved in return. A mature being can love without demanding that anyone love them. We want God to love us. I want somebody else to love me. You know, love me for my own true self. The kind of romantic uh, pop song where the kind of wailing about wanting someone to love me for my for my own true self. I'm feeling disappointed because someone doesn't love one. Anymore. She she loves somebody else. She doesn't love me anymore kind of wailing sound. <laughs> but in this case, in this sense, they being able to love without demand, without ex demanding that from anyone else takes a real, a really kind of mature awareness of the way things are. You're not going around trying to expect, even expecting anyone to, to love one in return. Not necessary anymore. So a Buddha mind is being that awareness of the way things are, being enlightened, being awake. It's always here and now, it's not, not an attainment, not an achievement. But it's so seemingly insignificant we overlook it. Because the, the thoughts of someone's self as being this way and that way, so we believe them so, so in, in them so much. The sense of being a personality, a certain kind of being, having an identity, we're so attached to that and so important to us to hold on to some identity of some sort that we can never be enlightened because we're always holding on to little ignorant things and views clutching desperately at kind of images and and identities even though they're you know, they can they'd be very stupid identities some people hang on desperately to inferior identities because that's at least give them some sense of security. I'm the, I know I'm a useless, worthless human being attached to that view. <laughs> some people attach the idea of being the, the, the most uh, despicable human being. There's no one more despicable than I am. Or some some of you attach the idea of being a very honest kind of human being. They say, I may not be diplomatic, but I'm certainly honest about everything. And then I'm a spiritually evolved being. I'm I'm highly spiritual and evolved that identity. These kind of 
images we desperately grasp hold of. Now they think we can observe this grasping side, and that's being enlightened too, being aware of what one is attached to, of of the result of attachment. So that's why in meditation now we're, we're reflecting on things, on attachment, rather than just trying to not attach. We're reflecting on what it is, what attachment really is. The mind easily goes that you shouldn't be attached to anything. We shouldn't be attached. We shouldn't be attached to Buddhism. We shouldn't be attached to monasticism. And people said, if you're, your Venerable Tomato is attached to being a monk. So he should, he should disrobe to prove he's not attached. attached to Ajahn Chah, attached to Theravada. It's wrong to be attached. You shouldn't be attached to anything. So you go around trying to not be attached. It's also operating from not, not from ignorance, isn't it? Not attached. I shouldn't be attached. And you find yourself eating your meal. I'm attached to food because you're enjoying eating your meal. I'm too attached to food. You lock the door of your house when you leave. You say, well, I shouldn't lock the door because I'm, it's just an attachment to the things in my house. If I really weren't attached to my furniture and things, I just wouldn't bother to lock the door. Anyone could just come in and take anything, and it wouldn't upset me in the slightest because I'm, I'm not attached. But because I'm so, so attached that when somebody steals my stereo, my fridge, my microwave oven, I get... <laughs> It upsets me. I don't like that. I'm terribly attached. There's no hope for me ever being an enlightened being. So we're not asking you to kind of throw away everything and just to prove you're not attached, but to recognize attachment. To know it, to know what attachment is. So you have to look at attachment, not with a critical eye of saying, oh, I shouldn't be attached, I'm a terrible person for being attached, but recognizing attachment so you know, know the feeling of it. Whenever you're suffering, it's because you're attached to something. So you can go to the attachment. Now the Buddha, in, the, in his teaching, describe the five aggregates of attachment. Panchupa, Tana, Kanta, Dukkha. The Dukkha, the suffering, it comes from being attached to the five Kandas, or five aggregates. Now these five groups, or five aggregates, can or are everything that one can possibly experience whether it's far away or near, whether whatever we see, 
hear, smell, taste, touch, or think can be put in in these five categories. And you say rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana, five categories. Rupa is like the body. It's form. It's uh, what we see. It's the what we hear. It's the objects of senses. And this rupa is attachment to sense objects, isn't it? To what we see is suffering. It's not saying that sense objects are suffering. We're not saying the world is suffering, or that that food or or flowers or beautiful things are suffering or bad, or not putting anything down, or trying to say everything is miserable. Pointing to just the attachment to the material world is it brings suffering. That in itself is suffering. The attachment. Not the material world is suffering, attachment to it, or identification with it. Then there's Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. These are the mental formations. You now, when you when you're looking at the stars at uh, at night, no, that which there's the consciousness that arises when you when the eye contacts a, a distant star that consciousness that's a natural arising through through sense contact that's in the mind isn't it an attachment to to that consciousness not the consciousness itself but the attachment is always uh, kind of exaggerating and 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 grasping in some way, holding, trying to, to complicate the situation, rather than seeing it as it is, being aware and enlightened, one tends to create complexities, reactions, through feelings, through perceptions, conditioned perceptions that we have about stars and about ourselves, about the universe. And the conceptions we make. <coughs> that which we create around the, the existing conditions. So that this mentality that goes on, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, the consciousness is Vijnana, sensory consciousness that arises when there's contact between uh, the mental and the physical. So you have, say, the I and the objects of the I and the consciousness that arises when, there, when there's contact. And the same with the ear, the organ of the ear and sound and consciousness, the sound, sound consciousness that arises in contact. Taste, smell, bodily consciousness, it's like yesterday under the under the beech tree when you were at the beach. You were at the beach and these little insects kept biting you. 
because of the of of their little biting, you you had where con the consciousness arose, bodily consciousness of it tickling or itching. Then the mental formation of aversion to it, wanting uh, not wanting to get rid of it. I don't think anybody liked it. So those kind of sensations are one one tends to want to get rid of. So that one notes this. The mental formations of just the clinging of of not wanting things to be this way. So we say Rupang Anichang, Vedana Anicha, Sanyanicha, Sankara Anicha, Vinyanang Anichang. Rupa or physical is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Perceptions are impermanent. Conceptions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. In sense, the consciousness that arises uh, of the senses, sensory consciousness, is impermanent. Consciousness changes, doesn't it? It moves very quickly. What you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, it moves very rapidly. It's conscious through the eye, through the ear, and this 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 changes very quickly. So that you you sometimes think that your consciousness of sight and sound at the same conscious moment, but actually it's just a movement rather than, than, uh, than, than being, than you're conscious of both at the same time. Consciousness is often portrayed in Buddhism, the symbol of a monkey, like a, a monkey is a very restless creature that's always uh, moving around, isn't it? it? It finds a banana in a tree, starts eating it, and it before it's even finished, it's taken maybe one or two bites out of a banana, sees another one, off it goes catch, get to get the other banana. It's like our consciousness, isn't it? You grab hold of this, and then you see, so off you go to get something else. Scattered brain, scattered mind, isn't it? It's moving about. Feeling, Vedana. We do, say, practice Vedananusati, mindfulness of feeling, of just physical sensation or, or emotional feeling. Like you're, you're feeling upset, or you're feeling uh, doubtful, or you're feeling frightened. You can actually, say, concentrate or go to these various feelings uh, feelings that are on the body itself what what's happening to you emotionally has its uh, physical effect so you can go right to the feeling like even a state like doubting not being sure you have a physical feeling to that if you notice be aware of that kind of uh, physically of the, of the sense of not being sure of something Happiness when you're happy or when you're depressed. You can. That's why in in there vipassana meditation, you're actually using the body and the and the feelings of the body 
physical feeling, physical sensation for uh, the concentration. When you're really full of hatred, you, what, where do you feel that hatred? What is it? What is the heat that, uh, that arises in anger? Lust. What is, what is the, the sensations of lust? we go to the actual the Vedana of it, we begin to see it in, in rather than just be caught up in, uh, through an indulgence or repression. If we don't notice the Vedana of things, we tend to either indulge in rep or repress those two extremes. Like one of you was saying, I get very tense and or very uh, nervous about certain things. Not want, and so not wanting to be nervous or anxious. But if you go to the actual feeling of being nervous and tense, without thinking you shouldn't be, and if you think, I shouldn't be tense, I should be relaxed, I should be a person who's relaxed and at ease with the world. Relax. You're operating from an ideal of how things should be, but when things are as they are, you go to them as they are, not trying to, to, to convince yourself that you're any way, but observing the way things are. Sometimes situations bring tensions. It's just it's a, it's a part of nature. It's not personal failure one feels tense or upset just by certain things so that you you can actually go to those those particular Vedanas rather than thinking oh here I go again being tense again and I shouldn't be after I've been practicing meditation long enough I should be relaxed at all times even in a tense situation I'd be sure totally relaxed But remember, the body is a sensitive kind of uh, thing. It's it's a sense organ. The whole body and the brain and all these they're sensitive. They pick up on everything. So if there's a lot of tension and and unpleasant things going on around you, the, your your mind is going to and body pick it up. Can't help it. You can make yourself insensitive. That's what a lot of people do, just make yourself very insensitive, just to repression and all that. Because you can't stand, you really resent to having, the, having um, been affected by the things going on around you. Because you take it so personally. This I've noticed with people like uh, Chithurst, people come and some people misinterpret it. Like you said, w w with women sometimes they're very intuitive, so they'll come into into say uh, the reception room, and they're very intuitive. So they pick up on things that people are thinking or feeling in the reception room, and then they misinterpret it all. 
to find some people can't stand because they 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 tend to identify so much with intuition that they they find say group meditation an impossibility meditating in a group or going into a group of people very painful for them because they pick up too many things from others and then they misinterpret it they take it all personally rather than 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 being intuitive wisely they be intuitive stupidly so Sometimes people, intuitive people, suffer terribly from, from because they're always picking up things. But then they're always, they're always attaching to their, in, the, their intuition as a personal kind of thing, and then giving it a kind of permanent quality. Like, Chithurst is this way because uh, they happened to go into the reception room at a time where there was some kind of somebody was really unhappy or feeling very miserable. It must be a terrible place if people are miserable. They, they misinterpret. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have wisdom to understand what intuition is. Intuition can pick up things and feelings and vibrations that are present, but those things are changing. They're not kind of permanent uh, conditions of any situation. Some people have, have very little intuition. So you find some people can walk into a situation where it's really tense and not be aware of it at all. People in a terrible state and they walk in with all their ideas completely oblivious to the feelings of the people that are there. <laughs> like people that are very rational and intellectual sometimes are incredibly insensitive because they 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 have they have all these ideas going on in their minds and they don't they never really open to the feelings of the people with them so you find some people married to each other a man married to the rational man married to an intuitive woman after 50 years, doesn't even know that she's she's been unhappy for 50 years. She says, I'm leaving you. I'm fed up. I haven't done anything. <laughs> I've always bought you a present on your birthday and giving you something on the anniversary. You should be grateful. Because you, on a rational level, you, you didn't even know anyone. You didn't bother to know anybody. But if I think of you as just, you know, what you should be, I can tell every one of you what you should be. Without knowing anything about you, I can tell you what you should be. Because that's a rational kind of sensible thing of a man, what a man should be, what a woman should be what a good Buddhist should be. And I don't have to know anything about you. I don't have to be aware or open to you in any way. But to know you means I have to, I have, I, it's not, not judging you by my views about what you should be, but my opening up the mind to uh, being aware 
of how things are, which is a different kind of experience, isn't it? When we tend to go at each other from ideals about what what a wife should be, what a husband should be, then we then we sometimes never even know the people we're sleeping in the same bed with. We don't even know who they are. We have an idea of what they should be only, which could be anybody. So seeing things in the right way means that we, we're not attaching to our intuition or to our rationality, but reflecting on any, on any attachment we do have to these qualities that we might have. If we prefer one over the other, we're attached to, to intuition, then we suffer a lot from that. And if we're attached to being rational, we att that attachment is suffering. It's not intuition or rationality or suffering, it's the attachment, because it always blinds us. We're always missing the point. We're never quite with and un fully uh, with, the, with what's going on. We're always a little bit off. And in being off like that, of course, then we suffer. Life seems to never be quite satisfying. And we, it's always a bit frustrating and annoying to us. But life is an irritation, isn't it? The sensory world is an irritating uh, experience. It's irritation and friction, so much of it, isn't it? Just when you have dualistic dualism, these things come together and then there's various frictions and irritations that we all, uh, they're an inevitable part of having been born. So meditation is being aware of friction and irritation rather than just trying to get rid of it, ignore it, or be lost in it. You think of in a, in a, in a community, a monastic community, you have an idea now, now Buddhist monastic community, there should be perfect Every monk, every nun should be totally giving, selfless, compassionate, full of loving kindness. There should never be any any selfishness uh, of a good monk and a good nun. They should be these wonderful, courageous, brave, all wonderful super men and women in a truly proper Buddhist monastery. There would never be any pettiness. There'd only be selfless giving and compassion all the time. So, I think I know Chitterst is like that. The rest of the world, the rest of the world is mean and selfish. But there's one place I know that will never disappoint me. You're sitting in your flat in London, having just lost your job, being put on the, being made redundant disillusioned with life. There's one, I've become a monk because 
live it, live with those monks because it, everything is perfect there. They will not fail me or disappoint me. So we have these visions of, of ideal kind of utopian paradises. People do that in, in one time in, in Thailand, living now in northeast Thailand. Somebody came and they said, I, I had to leave the l mad London, just terrible city, polluted, noisy, people are unfriendly, and went on about all the horrors of London, off to the forests of northeast Thailand where, where you can meditate in peace, where being with nature once again, living close to nature in this kind of wonderful setting. After a couple of days in the forest in northeast Thailand, they're ready dying to go back to their flat in London. The flat in London, they didn't have mosquitoes and and sticky heat and all that kind of thing. So we can we can imagine we have these these projections of wonderful forest monasteries in, in Southeast Asia or idyllic settings. But there's no place on the world in the on the earth that will truly satisfy us. There's no monastery, no community, no other person that will completely satisfy or never disappoint us. Because all these, these, these are conditioned phenomena. They are imperfect. Their nature is imperfect. So when we expect and demand satisfaction from these that these things that are unsatisfactory, we only feel despair and disappointment, disillusionment. So then the Buddha made this very clear, to note this, rather than going around trying to look for something perfect, you know, look, at what is, look at the nature of things, that, that it's imperfect. And that it's, that's the way it's supposed to be, it's not supposed to be perfect. It's all right if it's imperfect. Just the suffering comes from wanting it to be perfect when it isn't. So that when one of the, it's a quite a humbling experience to be able to accept the limitations and imperfections that we find within and without. We don't, we, we no longer make demands on the world, on ourselves or anyone else in that way, because we can accept the unsatisfactoriness of the sensory experience and not demand that it satisfy. I mean, we have to be enlightened by being fully aware of it as it is. Now this is a very, this takes a, a, rather a very maturing kind of, it's a mature being that is willing to do this. The, the childish being is always looking for something. When I find the next thing, it will satisfy me. When I get what I want, then I will be really happy forevermore. Prince Charming will come and, and with a glass slipper that will fit my foot and will live happily ever after. Cinderella, or Prince Charming with his glass slipper, somewhere, someday, I'll meet Cinderella, and her foot will fit right into this slipper.
<laughs> and we live happily ever after. But then it always works out, even though you find the right foot for the slipper, the rest of it may not be what you want. <laughs> Notice also that there is that that the sensual world is absurd when you it's an absurdity <clears throat> that any that when it's taken for more than what it is it becomes absurd so the humor is very much a part of, of our life isn't it because it's absurd the pretensions of humanity are absurd aren't they it's really ridiculous and humorous and that's what humor is about isn't it the pretensions of human beings and so we, we pretend don't we that life is different than what it is <laughs> uh, the, the sense of trying to the humor of, about maintaining a, a sense of being a very dignified and refined creature and then having to deal with things that that completely destroy dignity and refinement in our lives. <laughs> the, the humor of, of, uh, of our lives is very much dealing with the absurdity of, of the pretensions that humanity make half about themselves. reflection on the the way things are is not we're not uh, we're taking characteristics three characteristics that are common to all conditioned phenomena and these aren't qualities by qualities I mean whether it's good or bad or beautiful or ugly or big or small what I call quantity qualities or quantities and those you can compare you can compare uh, that this is bigger than that this is black this is white you can compare one thing with another contrast one thing with another but characteristics are common to to all phenomena all sensory phenomena so it's not it's not necessary to compare this is where many people get confused and say, all conditions are impermanent. All conditioned phenomena is impermanent. And so it, it's also the beautiful, the ugly, the, the refined, the coarse, the gross, the subtle, the heavenly realms, the hellish ones, everything that is born dies, everything that begins ends. Everything that we experience think or feel is impermanent. Now this is, as I said before, something to contemplate.
and reflect on. To because through reflecting on impermanence, then we begin to have insight knowledge, which is different than intellectual comprehension. Insight knowledge is the knowledge that comes from actually knowing that is having seen it, where you you really know that and not just. Uh, accept the theory of impermanence. Intellectually you can understand that everything is impermanent and, and think that's a good idea, that's a good theory. But still not have any real knowledge of impermanence. And in, in it, in, uh, we call it jnana dasana, insight knowledge. In Pali word jnana dasana means uh, uh, insight knowledge, not knowing about something but knowing it directly. You can know about something without knowing it. I know about uh, some person, but I may not know them. I may not know them at all, but I know about them. Because I know about them, I think I know them. Which isn't the case. You don't know anything till you actually uh, investigate, contemplate, and understand. Open up to the way things are, rather than just settling on uh, views and opinions about how things are. Stop with uh, refined refinement and coarseness and beauty and ugliness and this is better than that that's better than this and this should be and this shouldn't be and things ought to be and this is this is good this is bad this is right this is wrong so the mind goes on and on and on and on and it's being caught up in endlessly comparing and reacting to the qualities that we experience but when we observe the impermanent nature of things, then whatever the quality is, we're not we're not quibbling about, we're still aware of the quality, but we're not exaggerating any quality. We're not fixing on the quality but observing the characteristic. So even unpleasant things in yourself or in others you can see as impermanent rather than fixing on. It's a way of having a perspective, isn't it, on things. You can, you have a way of looking at something, even something really unpleasant, that is, gives you a little more kind of distance from it, and not so, just reacting to the quality of it. By reflecting on impermanence, you have, it gives you a little bit of space in the sensory world to, to understand what's happening, to see it, a little bit more coolly than you would if you're just caught up in the qualities of conditions. Because the qualities, you, you just react to them. It's wonderful. It's terrible. Jump for joy and then become depressed. And that kind of thing. Just reacting. Or you get tired of reacting. You get worn out by just having to respond to the qualities of things and you just shut them down go off and take sleeping pills and go to sleep. Get drunk, take drugs. Isn't that so many people into drug taking now and drink because they're just so tired and weary of having to respond to things. 
wearisome, the sensual world becomes wearisome when all it is is just an endless the obligation to respond to it. Where in mindfulness, when we when we're looking at the impermanent nature of conditions, we is a kind of coolness and a and a and a space to see things from and to let things be as they are without feeling obliged to set everything right or to run away from things. So impermanent <coughs> is what is one characteristic. The second that we use is is dukkha. Anicca is impermanent. Dukkha the word for suffering or unsatisfactory. Now this dukkha is the word English word suffering is sometimes not adequate enough of a, of a to define dukkha. But you can say unsatisfying. There's no sensory experience that is can really satisfy. It can gratify and make us momentarily happy, but it cannot truly satisfy. So even happiness is unsatisfactory. Happiness is not truly satisfying. It's happiness is uh, I use the word happy for the feeling you you get when you you have uh, when you get what you want. I get something I want and now I feel happy. So in order to be happy all the time you have to keep getting things that you want. You can see the material world is very much, materialist society is very much trying to bring us happiness, isn't it? By making us want a lot of things and then giving us the opportunity to get them. <laughs> so we make money and we can get the things we want and then we're happy. But then it doesn't last, does it? Happiness doesn't last. It's, it's, uh, so therefore it's, it's also dukkha. Happiness is dukkha. It's not truly satisfying. So to make happiness your goal in life is a kind of pathetic goal, isn't it? Because it, it cannot truly satisfy you. And when we spend our life just trying to get everything we want, we end up feeling disappointed. Even if we get everything we want, we're still, still not satisfied with it. So unsatisfactoriness or unsatisfying is is also a characteristic of all conditioned phenomena. There's no amount of money, there's no person, no amount of people, no situation, nothing in the world that will permanently satisfy, that can really satisfy us. And when you, uh, when you have insight into this, then you don't expect satisfaction from things that cannot satisfy. Just for example, just like these flowers. Look at these these flowers, these orchids. You think if you have the idea that somehow beauty is going to satisfy you, how long can you look at these orchids without getting bored with them? How long can you hold them and be absorbed into the beauty? Now there's they're beautiful the shape, the color, flowers are truly beautiful, but they're still, they cannot satisfy us, can they? You fill our room with flowers, the most beautiful flowers in the world, 
but we get bored with them, don't we? You can't really spend the rest of your life absorbed into a flower, even though it was truly beautiful. So beauty, in this sense, is dukkha. In the sense that it, it's beauty is is not satisfactory. And then eventually these flowers lose their beauty anyway. You know. Orchids get old and they turn brown and they start rotting away and we, we, we don't want to look at them anymore. Wants to look at a rotting orchid. So seeing the unsatisfactoriness of even the best of the sensory experience doesn't diminish its its beauty, but we make no demands on it to be otherwise. So we we can we can be at peace with the cycles of nature, with flowers when they're at their peak and when they're when they're when they're all rotting. We're not we're not uh, with the world as it is. We can accept nature and life as it is when we don't expect it to be otherwise. We don't suffer from it then because we aren't demanding that it satisfy us or protect us or, or make us happy. We don't demand that from other people or from the society or from the world or the universe or from God. We don't demand that God make us happy and protect us. We don't because we realized it's all unsatisfactory, cannot satisfy. The sensory world is a changing thing. There's no point in it that can can give you any permanent satisfaction. So you, when you real have the insight into that, you let go of it. You, you've liberated from birth and death by understanding birth and death and not by attaching to things that are born and die. And then anatta, the third characteristic of not being oneself. Now some people think anatta is a Buddhist doctrine. They say Buddhists believe that they don't have any self. The Buddhists believe that they don't have a soul. And some Buddhists believe that. They believe we don't have souls, we don't have selves. They say Christians believe they have souls. Stupid, aren't they? Buddhists believe that we, we don't have any soul. We're, we're somehow... That's supposed to be intelligent, I think. <laughs> believe we don't have a soul. Christians believe they do. But anatta doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that we don't have a soul on, a, on that level of doctrinal belief. Because believing you don't have a soul is also a belief, isn't it? But he's pointing to what is not oneself, like the body, for instance. We, we assume that it's, one, that it's mine. This is my body. This, we operate on this conventional level of, of self. This is my body, these, these are my robes, 
is not Venerable Papakura's robe. This is my robe. And this is my clock. It's not his. <coughs> it is mine, me. This is my body. This is what I am. When I have when a picture, a photograph, this is me. Look at there I am in that picture. So the sense of me in the conventional level it it operates all right. We have to call ourselves something and operate within a conventional system. But when we meditate, we begin to see that the body is is anatta, not self, not oneself. It operates according to natural law. It has no real uh, kind of essence of uh, soul or personality. It has no kind of permanent personality or essence. It's, it's a changing condition depending on on all uh, on many uh, on so many different things everything's affecting everything so these bodies you know they're not w when we identify with them then we suffer if they don't look the way we want them to if they aren't as healthy as we think they should be or when they get old and you don't want them to get old i don't want this body to get old i want it to be young but everybody gets old, don't they? Some people desperately try not to. Nowadays, I think you can have all kinds of operations. You know, have your face lifted and stretched and take hormones and whatnot. But inevitably, it's still going to get old. <laughs> kind of trying to maybe paint it up a bit so it looks younger than it would otherwise. But that's an illusion, isn't it? propping up a, a wilting flower. Because the body is not personal, it's not self. It's, it's, it's a condition like any others, like these flowers or like the trees. It belongs to nature and it, and it follows the laws of nature. So it was born, it grows up, gets old and dies. That's what it's supposed to do. If your body's not doing that, then there's something wrong with it. you find the body getting younger, I, that's, that's something to worry about. There's something wrong. But if it's getting older, then that, that's what it's supposed to be doing. That's, that's its perfection, the fact that it's obeying the laws of nature. And it's, it's not a personal thing, it's just following, it's, it's obeying the natural law all right and it's not self the same with feelings and memories and thoughts all these are co conditioned into the mind it's like now with computers and all that I'm beginning to see the, how what what uh, like a computer and all these machines are like projections of the human mind into in taking the brain and, and expanding it outside of the head isn't it you get these incredibly intelligent machines that can do all kinds of things that we can't do anymore. Because the human brain now has been is is being expanded, not not in the skull, but being taken out of the head into uh, into the into kind of plastic machines, plastic covered machines. 
They have computers. You can do all kinds of incredible things. And you can program them to, to think in certain ways and come out. So it's all, all our thoughts and memories, they're programmed into the mind, just like computers. And so when we start losing our memory, it's just because uh, sometimes the computer system breaks down. But we're, if we're so attached to memory, then we start getting upset when we can't, when, when our memory isn't so good. You can see that with older people sometimes, they get very upset because they can't remember things like they used to. And they, 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 they want to, they're so attached to being able to remember. But as you, but as you get older, you don't need to remember things. It's better to let go of memory because you're moving towards, say, say the Dhamma, toward truth. You don't need to have, you don't need to be attached to the memory, the things that have been programmed into your mind. But to desperately hang on to memory is suffering. If you notice that old age is, is preparing our minds for death. When you're young, what? When you're young, you have a lot of vitality. You can do all kinds of things. You, can, you like to explore and enjoy all the sensual things. Try to have all kinds of experiences. Test yourself, your vigor, your intelligence in the world. You don't want to do that all of your life. You get tired of that. At my age, you, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and you look at young people doing all these exciting, fascinating things, and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Because the advantage of being middle-aged is that you you don't you don't feel compelled to do all that. It's like going back and playing in the sandbox. You know, I was a little boy. I used to have a, a big sandbox. I used to spend hours playing in the sandbox, little cars, and I could entertain myself for hours, making tunnels in mountains and pushing these little cars to tunnels great fun. It's not immoral or or a wicked thing to do, is it? It's generally considered a healthy kind of thing for children to do at a certain age. But when you get beyond that age, then one no longer wants to do it. Why is that? I mean, you can imagine me sitting down at a sandbox. It's disgusting, a man hit at 50 years old. <laughs> well, at five years old, you think, isn't that sweet? Or that? Because it's inappropriate action for the age. The same with as you get older. And if you mature and grow up and learn from life, then you no longer want to do it or be useful or do all the things that young people do because you outgrow that. You no longer find that interesting or necessary for your life. And the, if you begin to appreciate what old age is about, you realize that, it's, that nature itself is preparing you for the, the death moment. 
when you can let go of everything. You can let go the burden of, of, ha of that, of that uh, result of having been born. So that they, this is, you realize that perfection in nature lies not in any, any condition, because there's no condition that's perfect, but in the way it operates, the cycles that birth conditions death. That, and that old age is, is, is an important part, and one of the most is important is being born. And that, that the aging process of the body is preparing the mind for the, one of the, for the most important thing after birth, which is death. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when you're dying, all you need to is be alert and aware and realize the truth of the way things are. You don't need to remember things or have a, a fascinating intellect or a brilliant mind or remember, you can forget it all. Not necessary to remember things. When you're dying, probably better if you don't. <laughs> you can let go of memory and you can be with the body as it's dying, fully alert to it, at peace with it, not, not uh, frightened by it, by the, what is natural, what is, what is the way that, that nature is. So in Buddhist meditation, see, we're, we're, this is a reflection on the, tr on the way things are, takes us to a state of fearlessness where we can appreciate life as it happens. We can learn from it, witness to it, without being uh, frightened or upset by, by life as it, as it changes. So these three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, are characteristics that we use to, in order to look at conditioned phenomena and our attachment to it. The sense of self is always the sense of, it, of being attached to it. Being attached to this body, then I, then, then I identify with this is me. When I'm not attached with it, it's still here. And I still say, this is my body, when the conditions are there for me to say that. Somebody asks, so whose body is that? I say, that's mine. So one can conventionally you still uh, say oh, this is my body, but it's not. But it's seen to as a con it's only seen as a convention, not as an ultimate identification. This, say, morning reflection, and now this is our what fourth day chance to say begin to reflect on these three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not-self. Now what I mean by reflecting, not, con not convincing yourself that you don't exist. Not that, that's foolishness, isn't it? I believe that I don't exist. Ridiculous thing to say. But to see, when we see the impermanent
there's nothing like the body or the or the feelings or the memories. There's no there's no point. There's no kind of essence or substance that one can truly, honestly call one's own. That's what I am. And so you free yourself from the limitations of identity with the five aggregates, with the body, with the feelings, memories, thoughts, sensory consciousness. In the morning reflection, again, my teaching. Extremes, 
you can bring awareness to any part of your body. Make it conscious so that you, the consciousness arises in the in your left knee or your navel or your big toe on your left foot. So that the body itself, you can actually relax and heal the body through, through the mind. If you're willing to, say, bring consciousness to various parts of the body, make them conscious. And you can do this quite deliberately if you, say, sweep through the body with no, you say, mentally, at the top of your head, or forehead, right cheek, left cheek, left eye, right eye, and so forth. This, this, and then you actually bring your attention to that part of your body. It becomes conscious. And the body is a living organism, so it, it, when it's when the body is a conscious body, then it is quite happy. Bodies become very ill and unhappy when they're, when they're ignored, and when they're, not, when they're never allowed to become conscious. Their cancer and all these things are a result of never really making anything very conscious. The parts of our bodies that the living life force doesn't operate very well. body for all kinds of foolish things. You can exploit it for pleasure. Just see how much pleasure you can get out of it. There's food and drink and sex and drugs and just see how you can just push it to extremes. You know, the Olympic Games going on in Los Angeles. <laughs> People that have just pushed their bodies to extremes. See how, how you can win it set records on feats of endurance, physical strength, exploiting the vigor of the body. I hate to think of what's going to happen to those people. They're taking what, these steroid drugs and all these kind of things to kind of increase the vigor and strength. Just to exploit the human body the result of which is it's not going to be a very pleasant one. As you all probably know, if you've exploited your bodies very much, the, the result tends to not be a very nice one. It's not a pleasant result. It's just seeking pleasure to it, or vanity. But when you uh, learn how to live with it, how to use it, how to abide with it in the right way, then bodies, you learn a lot from them. 
quite useful tool for meditation. Learning how to live within the limits of a human of a human condition. How to live in harmony with nature. Our desires will never let us know that, Lorraine. Desire just goes on. Carries us further and further. Trying to get more pleasure, more happiness. But reflection allows us to to understand what the, the limits are to having a physical body, how much it can endure, how much that it should endure, how much, uh, what it really needs to, to not be ill, unnecessarily ill or weak. And that takes wise reflection and sensitivity to it. Contemplate my skin. This, this surface of my skin, just as it is. Hold it in all these kind of organs and skeletons, liquids in the body. Imagine if, if our skin suddenly collapsed. What a mess there'd be in this room. All these things started oozing out. And yet this is this is very real, isn't it? How we're contained within a in a in a in a sack of skin and all these organs that operate, we don't have to really give them much attention, do we? When you eat your food, you just eat it and you don't have to think about digesting it. It just operates, does it all. You don't have to say, now where do where do we need some vitamin A today? down in, where, did, where is there a lack of vitamin A? The body just has this natural instinct operational ability. 
visualizing, bringing up in the conscious, in the conscious state, the parts of your own body, the blood vein, the bile vein, the uh, different organs, the stomach, the intestines, skeleton, the, the bone marrow, nerves, all these things are a, a, a meditation themselves. And this is for good health, since when you, when you are acknowledging this body as it is, the body responds always with a kind of gratitude, feels much better. It's a kind of meta-practice, but also, you know, I mean, a kind of respect and appreciation and, and uh, gratitude towards the body and the kindness it, rather than a, a resenting it because it isn't, because it's heavy or it's painful, but it's old or sickly, so that this, this body uses it as a meditation. Teeth or your palate, just the pressure of 
of your tongue touching that sense of touching the teeth or the palate in your mouth the wetness in the mouth the sensitivity of the lips no, the one the, the upper lip on the lower the mouth is very sensitive part of one's body the eyes of your body. This is where all your organs are contained. That whole part there from holds all these vital organs. The digestive organs, the heart. There's this whole trunk of the body. We tend to not notice very much. Contemplate this. The trunk of your body. All these organs are contained, kept safe within this trunk. 
were born, it's hard. It had to pump blood to this body. Quite miraculous when you think of what a tough kind of thing that a heart is, human heart. Keeps going for into the 80s.